Okay, so everybody, I swear to God, I'm not lying about the fact that I'm making a link for our live show. <laughs> Here's what we found out. Okay, so in order to hook up, like, PayPal or whatever to Zoom, you have to either get, like, a year-long contract or it has to be, like, in the month of the show. So oh. since the show is March 24th, <laughs> I'm waiting until, like, February 26th to set it up. So that I know we have a full month. Okay. But everything is set and ready to go. (laughs) I swear to God, this live show is happening on March 24th. And people are coming. If nothing else, it's going to be me and Katie sitting on Zoom. And you can just come talk to us. And we'll send you a (laughs) refund (laughs) of whatever we charge you, which at this point is probably going to be like $2. (laughs) Um, But I swear to God, it is happening. I've done all the research. I have it set up. I just, it's not 100%. But it's going to be good. It'll be so fun. You know what? Maybe Megan KB13 will be there. Maybe she will. What a nice review. Gosh. Megan. Megan left us a wonderful review today. I'm and so I happy just, we've been around uh, the world with congratulations you. Congratulations on going to Ethiopia. Yeah, my Shout God. out to you. Honestly, um, I, I just, love knowing my voice has been heard in yes. Ethiopia. <laughs> I also just want to like, I love giving shout outs to our listeners for doing like really cool fucking hard things. Yeah. You know, I actually thought about that. <laughs> I was at the gym the other day and this guy came over and he goes, can I make an announcement? on the loudspeaker and the guy at the gym was like okay and he was like tom just sent a 11b and it, like or flashed it and everybody's like, like you know that's nice it is nice because that's, nice, that's a hard climb to flash and right. you know i think that about megan in ethiopia that's a hard fucking thing and i'm yeah. gonna give you all the kudos for it because Get it, Meg. oh my gosh amazing so we love you thank you for your, your review yeah and if you want us to shout out your accomplishments write us a review about them yeah, let us Write know. Write us a review. Don't talk about us. Just, just make it about you. <laughs> These are all the cool things I I've done that, as a woman. Actually. I know. That would be my favorite. So that way we have more women to talk about. That's, yeah. the, that's the whole goal of oh this show. Oh, my gosh. What if we did an increasing. episode on Megan in like 10 years? <laughs> I know. We that should. Great. <laughs> Maybe she's the next. The next best thing. Thing? I don't know. The next big toast okay but what currently we're not bread the sliced next bread the next sliced bread that's what mm-hmm. you are meg mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't even know if you go by meg megan now I you do sorry. it's like the whole ronnie vero situation <laughs> <laughs> another person that's international um we're not here to talk about that yeah no we're not, <laughs> not yet uh-huh. we're here to talk about history on the rocks with katie and Allie. this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we're drinking the entire time and we're not historians god or philosophers no, in my case we are, my god but we do the best we can to pull the research together to bring mm-hmm. it all to your ears it's gonna be great it is <laughs> um but you are busy right now while you're listening to this you're in ethiopia in you're fact. in ethiopia <laughs> and you're kind of running around doing your thing whatever you do over there um and you don't want to stop what you're doing to look up what these women look like because you're busy. Yeah. So, but while you're hearing their story, you might be wondering like, oh, I wish I could picture them in my head. So we're going to help you out with that. We're going to get a little physical, physical, 
Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Shizao Kato, and she is a beautiful Japanese woman with an oval oval face, long eyebrows, and deep red lips. She typically wore her hair tied back in a bun and wore traditional Japanese clothing, but she also dressed in more Western-style clothing when she came to the Western world, which she kind of lived a very long life. So she was in a lot of different places and had many different styles, depending on what picture you see of her okay she's a very interesting (laughs) young lady and then a very interesting old lady oh i love that (laughs) who are you doing and what does she look like i am doing simone de beauvoir Mm. uh and i would liken simone's look to that of wallace simpson i think they look very similar Mm. thin and willowy uh although she was only five five but i feel like like she just like looks taller than Mm -hmm. she is um, big, big, tall energy. Yeah. Also, like the guy she was always with was like five one, so mm. maybe that's also why I'm thinking mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> but she had a long oval face with sharp features and small eyes that arched down. She had a bit of a crooked smile that got a little more wry as she aged. Her dark hair was often parted in the middle and pulled up. In one very famous photo, she has a scarf over her hair and over her head, and in many others, she has her hair kind of in a long, like log roll over the top of her head but like you can still see the middle part huh but then there's like this log over saying. top you know what i'm saying like when you do the george washington in the pool <laughs> <laughs> like that yes but you can still see the part, <laughs> the part. yes um very interesting um but yeah and uh that is what she looked like. amazing and she's just a yeah french woman of Listen, the 1900s never use the word <laughs> rye and log roll to describe <laughs> me <laughs> two things i don't want like the, in the same paragraph wow done you're, and done you're not allowed to give the eulogy at my funeral <laughs> although you might be best equipped i i'm forbidding it i might be <laughs> no. okay uh, <laughs> do you want to know what you're drinking yes it's so, it's green. so green <laughs> so this is Based on a cocktail called a Japanese highball. Um, And it is two ounces of Japanese whiskey, a half an ounce of fresh lemon juice, a half an ounce of honey. One, it said 1.4 teaspoons of matcha. I just put 0.4. (laughs) This is a fourth of a teaspoon, one for each of us. It's so green. green. And then you top it with club soda or tonic water or like whatever bubbly you have. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, it's interesting. That is very interesting. The honey lemon is there, but then the matcha's on the back. Yeah. And then you just get all these nice bubbles. I think I I really enjoy the bubbles with this because Mm -hmm. you're also not expecting it with the matcha taste. Mm -hmm. Usually matcha is very flat creamy and you know like i don't know yeah flat but like i just this is delightful i really like it yeah i was i was worried because i'm not a also i'm not a big whiskey fan like i like bourbon um but whiskey bourbon is a little bit harder to me uh-huh for me to stomach <laughs> yeah so i just want to also point that out because you and i are both more bourbon people because uh-huh. i wonder sometimes if people are like Wow, they just, like, never use whiskey. And, like, you know, technically bourbon is, like, a type of whiskey. But, yeah. like, that's just always, like, our go-to. Uh, I know. <laughs> okay. Tell me what you know about Shizou Kato. Nothing. Okay. So, first of all, <laughs> for my pronunciation, the way you spell her name is S-H-I-D-Z-U-E. Shizou. Okay. Shizou. Uh-huh. And then Kato being her surname. But a lot of times when you're reading articles about her, because her name's Japanese, the surname... <laughs> would come first, which would be Kato. Okay. 
Um, so you know nothing about her. So nothing. this is great. This <laughs> I'm, be... I'm going in completely blind. This is good. This is good. I like that. And so are our listeners. So you guys are about to learn so much. Oh, I forgot to say the name of her cocktail. This oh, might yeah. help you. <laughs> the cocktail is called Unplanned Parenthood. Oh, okay. Things are getting wild. Interesting. Okay. And then one of my main sources was a podcast I love listening to called Mimosa Sisterhood. I've never heard of that. Yeah, they do a great, they do what we do. They drink and uh-huh. they talk about women. Oh, so, I love that. yeah, it's very Perfect. similar to our show. They've been around for just about as long. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a really nice job and they have on. They're brave enough to have on guests to tell stories. Oh, God. Like, not just they tell the stories. They, like, bring yeah. on others. That's bravery That's to the nth degree. <laughs> I don't know what that is. It is bold. Okay. Shidzal was born on March 2nd, 1897. Whoa. In Japan to a wealthy ex-samurai family. Now, this is Japan in the late... 1800s so her father was not a militant samurai all of this came from the medieval ranking system you're born into high status so it's similar to in england when your family is considered a lord or like a knight it's like you were part of the feudal system in the higher class in the you know 1400s and it's just lasted through present day So her dad's name was Hirota Hitaro, and he was a successful engineer who received his education and training at the um, Tokyo Imperial University. Her mom was Tusumori Toshiko, and she also came from a very highly educated family. Both her parents, very educated, very wealthy Mm. in Japan in the late 1800s. Her dad was also going overseas all the time to Canada and the U.S. for work. And because of this, she and her family was really open to and understood Western customs, ideas, Mm -hmm. and culture, which was very rare because Japan had just opened up to the West in the mid-1800s. They were very isolationist for two or three hundred years. Wow. Um, They were not connected with any of the Western world. So the fact that very shortly after they opened up, her family knew a lot about the West was big for her. Yeah. The only other ports, really, in Japan, there were two ports... Um, one was Dutch and one was Portuguese, but other than that, there's not a lot of Western influence. Mm-hmm. So she's going to school and is very highly educated. Again, as an ex-samurai family, though, it was more like finishing school for her. She, her life was predetermined. She uh-huh. needed to get married. She needed to have kids. She was educated on how to run a home and be a good wife and be a good mother. So... When she is 17 years old, she gets married to a baron, Baron Ishimoto. And sometimes when you see some of her publications, it's under Shidzao Ishimoto oh. because of her uh, surname while she was married. Uh, he was a Japanese Christian humanist, which again, interesting, very rare, <laughs> a yeah, very, that's... very rare thing to be in Japan. He was the son of this important dude in the Imperial Army. Her family was super conservative. The family she married into was super conservative. Her husband is super conservative. So she had a privileged existence, but by no means was a free woman. She was not a free woman. 
Shortly after their marriage, when she's 18 years old, she and her husband moved to a coal mining town. Because he is a highly educated engineer, he has to go live and work in this town kind of like a supervisor. He's going down into the mines 10 to 12 hour shifts and like kind of controlling the engineering of this. While he's working, she would go out and see the people in this coal mining village. Super low income. They're living in absolute squalor. Mm -hmm. So this is like the serfs and peasants at the bottom of the feudal system that she's now witnessing the ancestors of. She's never seen this before. She's from such a high-ranking family. She didn't even know shit like this existed. (gasps) She's like, that's crazy. She knew more about like the west yeah than, like most people in japan at this time but yet knew she probably knew more about the west than like she did about her own country her own family wild like the people about. right below her yeah, yeah it's crazy. crazy her husband was also witnessing horrendous treatments of the employees in the mines and both she and her husband were so overwhelmed by what they saw that they both go through a serious mental health crisis. Whoa. They are breaking down. They say specifically for her, and he's going through this too, they couldn't sleep. They couldn't eat. She's crying all the time. (sighs) And they just couldn't believe that there are people in the world who live like this. And they're like, we have to get out of this town. We have to get out of it. We can't do this. Mm -hmm. So one thing that's really impactful to Shizou was that, um, In the coal mining town, while she's there, she's noticing what's happening to women specifically. Because Mm -hmm. she was allowed to be educated, even though she wasn't free. She's like, okay, women are definitely treated as second, third, fourth class citizens. She's so upset by how many babies are running around everywhere. She's like, there's kids everywhere. Mm -hmm. Some of them are orphans. We don't know who their parents are. If their parent died in the mine, women have to take care of these babies. But they don't even have the time or money or food to take care of themselves. And she's like... She doesn't even have the vocabulary in her brain for family planning or women's rights. That's Mm -hmm. not a thing in Japan. She Mm -hmm. just knows it's wrong and she can't handle it. Um, But at this time in the U.S., it is right after 1900. There is a big worker union movement happening in the United States. So her and her husband, after three years in this coal mining town, pick up and move to america whoa they're like let's go big move (laughs) get out of here halfway around the world to america so it is 1919 she is 22 years old and she is living in the post first wave feminism u.s also can you imagine being married for five years and only being 22 no (laughs) i was married for three years (laughs) at 22 um yeah no that's crazy that's very very young to get married so 1919, it's right after World War I in the U.S. Women can vote. White women mm-hmm. can vote. Uh, it's the 20s. Women are cutting their hair short and going out dancing and having starkly independent lives that she's never seen before. They're living in and right on the outside of Washington, D.C., and all of these unionist ideals are pulling her husband in, and he's starting to work with them. He's in this socialist, communist party alignment. He's a consultant and interpreter in the government for Japanese delegation and the International Labor Organization. So he is, like, high up there. But because he's working all the time, their marriage is starting to have some serious problems because he's off working. Mm. She's in the U.S. She doesn't speak English. She is left to her own devices. So she's like, 
I'm going to go down to the local rec center and sign up for some English lessons. And she does. And she goes down there and she starts to learn English. And then she's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go sign up for some secretarial classes. I'm going to learn how to be a secretary. And then after that, she moves out of her husband's apartment and <gasps> lives by herself what? in America. She was impassioned and motivated by the women she saw in the United States. And this is like 1919 women. Like we just got the right to vote and literally have nothing. <laughs> like, oh so, But gosh. she's just blown away by how much freedom they have. So she begins socializing with, just like her husband, the socialist parties and hanging out with her husband's acquaintances, even though she doesn't live with him anymore. And she starts meeting people and going to parties. And she inevitably meets Margaret Sanger. And they, I I know, (laughs) they become instant besties. Oh my gosh. Instant besties. The two minds think so much alike. Also so annoying then that she is not featured in Margaret Sanger's story (laughs) at all. I know. So Shizu learns about birth control and family planning and about female reproductive parts. She, like the women in Japan, know you get pregnant, but nothing about like how sex gets you pregnant. Mm -hmm. Like they're no, like you get married and have sex so you get pregnant, but like not like about ovulation and like how to like the times of the month when you're less likely to get pregnant Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. They just, she has no idea. Um, so she learns all about this from Margaret and she's like, yeah, we've been having these problems in Japan. I was just living in this coal mining town for three years and it's terrible. And Margaret's like, I want you to take all these things that I'm doing in the U S and I want you to take them to Japan. And Shidzel's like, fuck yes yes I will do that yes I will absolutely do that I'm not married I'm entirely free like let me go so emboldened by her new freedom she decides to return to Japan and she picks up her stuff and left wow after two years in the United States she goes back to Japan in 1921 she wanted to continue her life of freedom she wanted to strive for economic independence when she gets to Japan which is unprecedented for a woman of her status to make their own money in Japan. Mm -hmm. She's not allowed to do that. But she goes and gets a job as a private secretary for the YWCA, which primarily consisted of introducing – her job was to introduce Western visitors to Japanese culture. Oh, cool. So it's like the YMCA. Yeah. The YWCA. And (laughs) she's just hanging out with the people coming to visit. Cool. Um, She's also – uh decides well i need to make some extra money so she became a wool and yarn importer so because they'd been closed off to the western world for so long all they had was cotton and silk Uh so now it's like wow we can import these new things from all the way across the world and she opens a business called minerva's yarn store (laughs) minerva's yeah i love and just sells cloth to people (laughs) for a little side hustle And then she starts opening family planning clinics and starts speaking tours around the country. So all these many revenue streams are coming into her, but she is not living a life of luxury. All the money is going right back into educating women about their body and about pregnancy. She's now on her way to becoming the Margaret Sanger of Japan. While she's on her tours and doing all the clinic things, she's writing reports that there needs to be better access to birth control to help out Japan's growing population. In the 1920s, 
tons of babies had no access to childcare. Um, and I mean childcare like daycare. And from what I understand, I did a little research on this. Um, and please tell me if I'm wrong if you're in Japan. Even today, there isn't support to raise children outside of your nuclear family. Really? So it's not like there aren't big daycare institutions. You don't like get a babysitter on Friday night. Like it's not something you do. You raise your kids until they go to like preschool. Hmm. So Interesting. It's not like once a woman has a kid, she can't really like have a job in that time because there's not a daycare center oh interesting. um they can start going to preschool at about one or two so it's younger than here oh, okay well that's but good. it's still like a year you have to be off yeah however present day japan does have amazing maternity leave oh. you can take three years off the first year you can take without losing any money the second year, it is half of your pay. And the third year is no pay. But your job is guaranteed. Oh, wow. That is as, good. <laughs> as long as you come back in those yeah. three years, your job is guaranteed. But because of that, women are often not hired for higher level jobs oh. because their bosses are aware that they might have to get somebody to fill in anyway. So it's like a double-edged sword. Yeah. But I just, I was doing a little bit of searching around, um, and the woman who was talking about this on Mimosa Sisterhood was currently living in Japan at the time oh. while she was talking about it. Uh -huh. So then after she made some comments, I kind of looked it up and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to the past. Her argument at the time was that birth control will allow women to have greater independence. Yes. Mm -hmm. And become government officials. Yes. And they could not all the time be raising children. And if they could become government officials, then they could allow women to vote. Yeah. Because women in Japan weren't allowed to vote until after World War II, 1946. So she's still living in this. She left America where women could vote and she's coming to back home where they can't. Yeah. She also thought that birth control would allow women to raise their children better because they could focus on the kids they had mm -hmm. and they wouldn't always be worried about money. And there's no birth control. There's no condoms. There's no basic understanding at right. all. And that's what she's trying to bring to people. Yeah. Um, because it's an island, like we said, it had been really cut off from other countries. But once they did reconnect with the rest of the world, Japan's looking around and they go, huh, I didn't realize that Europe was doing this whole colonialization thing. <laughs> huh. Well, if we want to be a world power again, and it's not like Japan was struggling like right, a ton. Yeah. They were just like, if we want to be contenders mm -hmm. as world powers, we should absolutely start taking over other places. Right. We got to start colonizing so of oh, course they no. do they take the koreas like that's the oh. first step um they were in charge of korea during world war ii which is why they were taken and split up after the war they start a war in manchuria to take a portion of china which they do um it's also the reason that they attacked the u.s because we had a base in the philippines and they wanted the philippines so japan is like pressing outward uh-huh but it's what everybody else was doing. Let's right. be clear. Yeah, let's be if, clear. You wanna think, <laughs> if you want to think they're villains, look in the mirror. <laughs> because we had a base in the Philippines. We had yep. Guam. We had Puerto Rico. And then you talk about the countries in Europe that had everywhere in Africa. Uh -huh. And um, so they were just like, oh, okay, I understand what to do to be a contender. But what that means is they are really upset that she's going around telling people to have 
less children. Oh. They're like, we need a military. We need, a, we need a huge uh-huh. population. Like England, the United Kingdoms has had time. Their little island has power. <laughs> we have to now bolster up this huge issue. So the government is not happy with her. It's around this time that she met Kanju Kato. Uh, And he would later become her second husband. They met in 1932 when he was a labor organizer who arranged for her to speak to minors at a copper mine. And she was later granted a divorce from her first husband and then remarries him. She's in Japan trying her hardest. And in 1937, we are on the precipice of World War II. And she gets arrested. (gasps) No. For promoting dangerous thoughts because she was advocating for birth control and abortion rights. So she's arrested. She spent two weeks in prison and then was forced to close her clinics, stop her writing, and stop openly advocating for women. I will say, though, what an amazing power she obviously had mm-hmm. to be like, she's one woman doing this mm-hmm. and being targeted by the entire Japanese government, like, the Imperial Japanese yeah. army, is like, like targeting her power, power, power. She's got power because they know she's fucking right. Yes. And they know that if she spreads that power to other women, mm-hmm. they're in big fucking trouble. Exactly. <laughs> I should say here because no one's perfect. Much like Margaret Sanger, Mm. she was influenced by eugenics. Mm -hmm. She believed that children born to two healthy parents would be better off than children born to sick, weak parents. This is extremely ableist, Mm -hmm. and we do not agree with it. No. Um, And it is just a fact of wealthy culture back then as people with less money were seen as lesser than. Um, And that's just really how she felt. Yeah. So World War II happens. Everything everywhere gets put on hold. The entire world is like, pause, let's take a break. Um, But she does survive World War II, which in Japan was very hard if you were in one of the major cities, like in the South. I mean, we talked about Yoko Ono walking around with her grandmother pulling like a cart behind them after the city was bombed. Like those types of things happen to women in our stories that are still alive today. Like Mm -hmm. Yoko Ono's alive living in New York and went through that. That's crazy. Or Yoko Ono's grandmother, whatever. Okay. So. Well, Yoko Ono's grandmother is probably not still alive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But Yoko (laughs) Ono is still alive. So, um, she put everything on hold with birth control. The war ends and women in Japan are given the right to vote. As soon as that happens, she becomes the first woman to campaign for office in Japan. Wow. She campaigns under a socialist platform and emphasizes an American-style democracy. And then she became the first woman ever elected into Japanese government. What? Yes. (laughs) So cool. I know. The parliament, which is known as the <laughs> Japanese diet, they call it the diet, not the mm-hmm. parliament. I'm just going to use parliament because it makes more sense in my brain. Yeah. But she's the first person elected to parliament. Oh, that <laughs> is so cool. I know. Her campaign platform was based on family planning and improving the economic prospects for women in 1946. This is what she wrote. Giving birth to many and letting many die, repeating such an unwise way of life for Japanese women will result in exhaustion of the maternal body as well as mental damage and material loss for the family. Without the liberation and improvement of women, it is impossible to build democracy in Japan. Yeah. 
Fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although she was initially hopeful of Japan's growing political role for women, she was soon marginalized in a mostly male parliament. Mm. Despite this, she looked for other ways to achieve political reform. She was instrumental in organizing the first women's only rally in Tokyo. The rally protested for greater economic resources for women. She was later elected to four six-year terms in the (laughs) upper house. She was there for four six-year terms, 24 years in office. Um, And she continued to advocate for reforms affecting women's rights and family planning. This is when birth control, sexual health, and family planning classes started again in Japan because of her. She invited Margaret Sanger to visit Japan for the Fifth International Conference of Planned Parenthood. Margaret came and spoke to the people, and Shizu was her interpreter the whole time. Margaret actually stayed for a really long time in Japan and then actually was invited to speak to the emperor. So Shizu got Margaret into the emperor. Shizu advocated for reforms affecting women's rights and family planning, including birth control legislation, the abolishment of the feudal family code, the establishment of the Women's and Minor Bureau of the Department of Labor, and environmental issues affecting women workers. Even after she retired from politics, she continued her political activism and she continued to lecture on feminist issues as well as continued to chair the Family Planning Planning Federation of Japan. She created, and this is just a short list, the Japan Family Planning Association. She was the president of the Family Planning Federation of Japan. She was the vice president of the Japanese Organization of Japanese International Family Planning Association, and she was in parliament for over 20 years. In 1975, she was awarded the first order of this of the Treasurer of Japan, um, which is kind of like getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It's the highest civilian award you can get in Japan. In 1988, she received a United Nations Population Award. In 1996, she received an award um, that was given in her name. So now other people are earning an award from her to commemorate the work of women fighting for reproductive rights. Now there's not much about her personal life anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like I really couldn't find it. I do know that she has three children. I don't know with which husband and I don't (laughs) know when because she's really bouncing around, but she was a working woman her whole life. Like while raising these children. She was a political figure until her death, um, which was 104 years after her birth. Um, 104. Yes. So Japan has continued to bear the fruits uh, of her labor. She, because of her activism, has increased family planning and therefore brought down the number of abortions. She's brought down infant mortality. She's brought down maternal death rates while increasing contraceptive usage up to 80%. Japan's family planning model has been so successful that it attracts attention from other countries trying to model what we do after her. Up until the last few years of her life, she was writing and speaking and protesting, like I said. And she lived from March of 1897 to December 22nd, 2001. 
<laughs> and that is the life of Shitsu Kato. Wow. Can you believe no. that? I can't believe I've never heard of her. That's uh, so ridiculous. I know. She's so cool. <laughs> she's a powerhouse. I mean, she's like Margaret Sanger and like Patsy Mink. You know yeah. what I mean? Like all wrapped in one. She's like the first woman in. But, yeah, because she's like in the government and then she's in family planning and like she's a working woman. Like she's <laughs> just like. Yeah, she's really fucking cool. I couldn't I believe we had that. never heard of her. Yeah, ridiculous. Like, what an amazing, amazing woman. And to live through World War One and <sighs> World War II. Like, yeah. She's a remnant of medieval Japan and makes it all the way up to the 2000s. She lived in like three separate... She lived in three separate centuries. <laughs> I know. She was born in 1897. I know. That's crazy. Unreal. It's unreal. And I just like... It was very cool learning about it because she spanned so much time and there was so little information on her. I was like, this is abysmal. It's abysmal that we don't yeah. know a lot about this woman. Wild. Um, I did see a couple books with her face and name on the cover, but they could not find the translations of them. So if anybody um, knows what they are. We have a sister-in-law who's learning to speak Japanese, yeah. so maybe she can read it to me that would one be day. Great. You be the translator of yeah. this book. Um, or her mom can translate it. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. She's very fluent. Yeah. Okay, so right. aren't you so excited about that? Love her. I know. Don't love my story as much, okay. but that's okay. Yeah, that's um, fine. <laughs> all right, well, let's get more drinks. We'll be right back. Whoop, whoop. We're back. We are. Part two. We are having these really beautifully colored cocktails tonight. What are Who we are even we? doing? Look at these skateboarders <laughs> just going down the hill. Oh, maybe they're hoverboards. Oh. Yeah. Okay. They're not as cool as I thought. No, those are those rib sticks. Oh, fine. Yeah. Okay. I hope no they get thanks. hit by that truck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Numbers. These cocktails okay. are lovely. I've got uh, some oranges in here. Yes. All right. So this cocktail is called... Second sex on the beach. <laughs> oh, funny. It is tequila, grapefruit juice, hibiscus, simple syrup, peach schnapps, orange bitters. Oh, my God. And you top the whole thing off with little um, mandarin orange slices from like the Dole fruit cup. Like the ones you got <laughs> at school lunch. Yes. yes. Like, cheers. cheers. <laughs> this looks beautiful. Mmm. I love it. A lot going on. Yeah, it's such a different taste from the last cocktail. Yeah. Um, the pineapple's great. There's no pineapple. What is it then? <laughs> what am I tasting? All right, so there is tequila, grapefruit juice, hibiscus simple That's syrup. That's it. That's what mm -hmm. I'm tasting. The hibiscus, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then peach schnapps and orange bitters. Yeah. So I really like it a lot. That's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, so what do you know about Simone de Beauvoir? I mean, you told me she's <laughs> the person who wrote a second second sex and i like i know that's a famous um feminist book mm -hmm. and that's what i i don't know anything about her life right. and if so, if i was asked on like jeopardy who wrote that i probably couldn't pull her name yeah like if you connect it for me i know yeah but not without like i'm not that yeah. i'm an idiot <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to get into it. Um, just a warning. We're going to talk about some uncomfortable sexual abuse allegations and things like that. So that's ahead. Be prepared. Um, and there really wasn't a lot on. I had a hard time doing this research because a lot of people want to talk about her philosophy. 
Um, I don't understand philosophy at all. Mm-mm. It's so dense for me. Like I dated a philosophy major for a bit. And when he got into like philosophical diagrams, I was like, I am totally out. Mm-hmm. I'm out on this. This is crazy. <laughs> well, no philosophy is surface level. Yeah. There is no like child friendly version of philosophy. Like no. I just can't get it. No, no. I just don't understand. Um, so, am I in a cave? Am yeah. I seeing a shadow? <laughs> is it the fire behind me? So I just want to also preface this story with like, I literally can't understand it. Okay. So we like did a book interview recently with like a philosopher and I was like, I'm way over my head. Like, yeah. as, <laughs> we don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> so let's get into it. Simone, Lucie, Ernestine, Marie, Bertrand de Beauvoir was born on January 9th, 1908 in, in France? Paris, France. <laughs> <laughs> Her family was a part of the bourgeois class, or I guess bourgeoisie, Ooh, um, bougie. Living, living in the very stylish 6th arrondissement of Paris. Uh, I don't know if I said that right. Um <laughs> I feel like they just always, they call them like the sixth, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen that in Emily in Paris. Well, the sixth? They're like, yeah, like I'm going to the sixth, I'm going to the ninth, whatever, uh, I like, think. Who knows? I don't I know. Don't know. Um, also, I feel like they do that in like House Hunters International. Oh. <laughs> They're like kind of beautiful apartment in the sixth. Um, yeah, okay. Parents. Let's just start naming things yeah, around let's here. Just- <laughs> let's just, and like make it weird. Her parents were Georges Bertrand de Beauvoir, a lawyer who once aspired to be an actor. Mm. Uh, her mother was Francois Beauvoir, a wealthy banker's daughter and devout Catholic. We're so international tonight. <laughs> she also had a sister named Helene, who was two years younger than her. Um, and since her mother was very Catholic, she insisted on her two daughters attending a prestigious Catholic boarding school. But the cost of this school, their whole lifestyle, and the effects of World War I caused the family to lose much of their wealth, which was worrisome with two daughters because they soon found themselves without a dowry. I didn't even know dowries were still a thing in the early 1900s, but here we are. Uh-huh. But her father, Georges, was never too worried about Simone. He always admired her intelligence and her precocious, curious attitude he would say about his daughter, she thinks like a man. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a high-regarded <laughs> compliment that I won't take. <laughs> she would later say, my father's individualism and pagan ethical standards were in complete contrast to the rigidly moral conventionalism of my mother's teaching. This disequilibrium, which made my life kind of endless disputation, is the main reason why I became an intellectual. So from a very early age, she goes, oh, these people think very differently from each other. And she's kind of soaking it all in. Mm. And like just early on is very interested in the way that people think and how that affects how they interact with people and live their lives. And, you know, so this is her from an early age. Uh, In her intellectual pursuit, she first got her teaching degree at secondary school. After passing baccalaureate exams in mathematics and philosophy in 1925, she studied mathematics at the Intuit Catholique de Paris, and she also studied literature and languages at the Institut Saint-Marie. Then she studied philosophy, mathematics, languages, and literature, and wrote her diploma at the Sorbonne under Leon 
Braunschweig. Wow. And you know what? Maybe those two are the same thing because all I heard was math, literature, language, philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if those were all the same at the same school. I don't know. Who knows? But in 1929... <laughs> She took the aggregation in philosophy. So this is a highly competitive postgraduate exam that serves as like a national ranking of students. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the bar, but for philosophy. And you take the test and they like say how you compare to other people. Yeah. Wow. Very intense. Uh, very daunting. And there's a jury for this exam and they narrowly awarded another student Jean-Paul Sartre first place instead of Simone who placed second and it was a very narrow score (laughs) was the difference that she was a woman uh probably yeah uh and she was just 21 when this happened and just a note Again, she's 21. It made her the youngest person to ever even pass this exam. And Jean-Paul was taking it for the second time. Oh, (laughs) unfair. Docking points for that. (laughs) And maybe it was the thrill of the intellectual rivalhood that made their relationship Mm -hmm. go from purely intellectual to romantic. I like to imagine that they are what could have been if Paris and Rory had gotten together on Gilmore Girls. (laughs) (laughs) But together, they became the kind of it duo of the French philosophy cafe scene. So this is where we get the, like, typical, like, when we think of, like, the French cafe scene and people talking about life and love and what does it mean to be human. Mm -hmm. This is that scene. (laughs) And Uh, they are the bells of the ball. Like, what is it? What is truth, actually? Exactly. And I call them a duo instead of a couple because they had an open relationship for their entire life. One person referred to them as intellectual and romantic comrades, but they would sometimes refer to their relationship as being soul partners. Between 1931, and it's funny too, because so like their letters were published way later and they're constantly just like writing letters about like their sexual exploits to each other. And someone was like, it kind of almost feels like they don't even really like having sex with other people. They just do it to then write letters to each other about it. Hmm. Like that's what they actually enjoy. <laughs> They're like breaking it down. I feel it is very much though a philosophy mindset to be like, we're not meant to be monogamous. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. we're spiritually, we connect. So yep. let's just have sex with who we want. Yeah. And each other, you know, it's very interesting. Um, so between 1931 and 1941, uh, Simone taught philosophy and literature in Marseille and Rouen. I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of these French words correctly, Just say by them the way. the way you want. Um, They'll tell us if we're wrong. <laughs> in 1941, she was dismissed by the occupying Nazi government. Mm. Terrible. Um, soon after, though, she was allowed to teach again. But then in 1943 a different kind of scandal occurred. The school was getting some complaints about Simone's behavior. So as we said, she had this very open relationship with Jean-Paul. She was also very openly bisexual. Uh, But soon it came out that some of the 
relationships she was having with women weren't exactly consensual. Oh. Simone had a habit of grooming young female students of hers. I don't love that. No. Natalie Sorkin was the first victim to come forward. Uh, Her parents found out about this situation and officially accused Simone of corrupting their daughter. Then two other students came forward and said that Simone had pressured them into sexual relationships and they would go on talking about like the long-term damage of this whole situation, you know, that it caused them. And it also seems that Jean-Paul was also involved in the grooming and exploitation of these girls. Like there were these two sisters, Wanda and Olga. Jean-Paul was having a sexual relationship with Wanda, but she was the older sister. So then he wanted to have a sexual relationship with Olga and she didn't want that. But Simone had a sexual relationship with Olga that seemed kind of like it was being pressured. Like it was really an uncomfortable situation and it wasn't okay and it kind of reminds me a bit of the like Ghislaine Maxwell just Jeffrey about Epstein kind to of say that yes. they were working together to like groom young girls yeah. yeah yes both of them both of them because like there are some that like it seemed like they would both have a sexual relationship with right they were a very predatory couple it seems and they had a lot of power and a lot of clout within this philosophical community so i'm sure that they were just like what's wrong there's nothing wrong with this and like if even like if someone says something like what are they going to do to us like you know like we have i don't know it's like a really upsetting situation it's it's our word against theirs and we're super powerful yeah yeah but i mean once this all came out they took her teaching license away Mm. they're like you are not allowed to be around young girls which is like wow that, like, never happens. That's mm. great. Never <laughs> happens to men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. Never oh, my God. happens to men. That is true. Um, but Simone... Mm. I should say, or straight people, because they do that a lot to, like, Boy Scout leaders, just if they find out they're gay. Oh. Like, mm-hmm. male um, Boy Scout leaders. Yeah. For no other reason than they're gay. That's just discrimination. Yeah. But Simone wasn't really bothered about any of this, because she was like, well, I'm really a writer anyway, so this will be a good time for me to get really into my writing. So she published her first novel called She Came to Stay in 1943, and it has been assumed that it was inspired by her and Jean-Paul's sexual relationship with Olga and Wanda. So these two impressionable girls, young girls, not great. She also wrote a bunch of other books during this time period, like The Blood of Others, All Men Are Mortal, and Who Shall Die?, And then she starts writing some philosophical essays about existentialism. So existentialism had been around for a while, but it really gathered steam with people like Simone, Jean-Paul, and a guy named Albert Camus. And this is what Wikipedia has to say about existentialism. (laughs) It is a form of philosophical inquiry that explores the issue of human existence. Existential philosophers explore questions related to the meaning purpose, and value of human existence. Common concepts in existentialist thought include existential crisis, dread, and anxiety in the face of an absurd world, as well as authenticity, courage, and virtue. So the original line of thought um, was based on religion. So serving a higher deity was human's purpose. And so our ways of developing meaning kind of all stemmed from that. But then Simone and these other people started to argue 
that we are born as blank slates with free will. You know, like there is like we don't have an exact like we have to find our own purpose. And she talks in the ethics of ambiguity about how this free will is kind of a blessing and a burden. She says our greatest ethical imperative is to create our own life's meaning while protecting the freedom of others to do the same. So basically, I'm free to do what I want and you're free to do what you want as long as what we want is not getting in the way of each other's freedoms. (laughs) So it's all kind of based on like the self and the community. Hmm. It's like, you know, you want to be free, but you also don't want to step on somebody else's freedom. She said a freedom, which is only interested in denying freedom must be denied, which I kind of like that quote, you know, like if you being, it's, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I think a lot of things could like, fall under that umbrella yeah if you're doing something only for the object of that thing instead of like for the greater purpose yeah and like if you want to do something that is act like i i don't know how to describe it (laughs) (laughs) philosophy it's like i had something in my head it's so hard you know and then it like just kind of went away Um, but this got her to thinking about womanhood and the invisible rules that mean she's a woman. And this led to her most groundbreaking work in 1949, The Second Sex. This book boldly argues, especially for the time, that gender is not predetermined. In her most famous quote from the book, she says, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. And to become a woman is to become the other. She argues that man is considered the default while woman is considered the other. Thus, humanity is male and man defines woman, not herself, but as relative to him. And because of this othering, women are second to men and they are systematically restricted from pursuing freedom. One of my favorite quotes is, her wings are cut and then she is blamed for not knowing how to fly. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you tell us that we have no power and then like, you know, we get in trouble for not having power. Having power. Like, yeah, makes no sense. <laughs> like we suffer for not having power. The book guided people through the history of the treatment of women and also contained first person stories from women about how society was currently treating them. And many people say this is why the second sex became such a popular feminist text. It was the perfect combination of history, philosophy, and personal stories. And, of course, it had this key word of the other, which led people to reflect on how else, you know, other people are othered in society. You know, we talk about that all the time, how people of different races or nationalities or abilities are othered and they are treated as second-class citizens. And that whole kind of idea of the other came from Simone. So she's the person who came up yes. kind of with the phrasing of othered. Yeah. That's Which we really use cool. all the time. I use it daily. Yeah. Daily I say that. It's very cool. It all came from her. I had no idea. <clears throat> and it also laid the groundwork for gender sex distinction, which obviously we're also having a lot of conversations about right now. Mm-hmm. She also talks about how limiting sexual labels are. She says, in itself, homosexuality is as limiting as heterosexuality. The ideal should be able to be capable of loving a woman or a man, either a human being without fear, restraint, or obligation. So it kind of feels to me in that sense that she's arguing for, like, I think what we would refer to as pansexuality Mm -hmm. of like, 
why are we keep like why do we keep labeling ourselves when we should just be like loving people and having relationships people to people why label ourselves conversation label ourselves as pansexual exactly (laughs) but it's just like it's a very she's talking about such modern things she's ahead of her time 1949 she's definitely ahead of her time here and she also makes this very interesting point about men making women mysterious she argued that men use this as an excuse not to understand women or their problems and not to help them. And that this stereotyping is always done in societies by groups higher in the hierarchy to the groups lower in the hierarchy. And I feel like that is very true. Like I hear that all the time, like, oh, women are just so hard to understand. So if I don't treat them well, it's their fault because they're mysterious and like, I don't get them. And they're like withholding, you know? Meanwhile, I'm like, can you just text me back? Yeah. Like I told you (laughs) it took three words for me to tell you exactly what I want. Yep. Just text me fucking back. It's no mystery. No, I just like, I never thought about, it's kind of like that thing, you know, when people say like, when men are like, oh, like I would change the baby's diaper, but like, I don't know how. Yeah. So I was like, well, you could learn, yeah. you know, it's like women are so mysterious. Like, I don't know how to, how, the, how they want yeah. to be treated. It's like, well, you could learn. Yeah. You could ask us questions. You could ask what we want. Like, yeah. <laughs> or you could just listen. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We say. But I just, I never thought about that. The burden of being mysterious is mm-hmm. kind of like, just like a way to be like, oh, I don't get it. So I'm not going to try. And it's funny because <laughs> also women are insulted for playing dumb, right? Yeah. When mm-hmm. girls that like do the ditzy thing to get ahead, they're treated like idiots. But it's like men are like the, I won't just say men, but like the, like you said, the higher group yeah. or the majority group uses that all the time. I just don't get it. Yeah. And it's like, obviously you get a lot of things. Yeah. You're very well <laughs> equipped to take on life. Yep. Um, she also talks about marriage and pregnancy. She thinks that marriage is a perverted institution oppressing both men and women. And she thinks pregnancy is a gift and a curse to women. Agreed. Yes. <laughs> Cause she said, you know, it's obviously like this awesome power that we have. Like it's insane that we can grow human beings inside of us, but also it can make women lose themselves. Suddenly they are seen only as a vessel or as she calls it a passive instrument, which I do kind of like that phrase. Cause like, I feel like a lot of times when women have kids, like all of a sudden it's like, that's it. They are uh, a mother and that is the end of their story, you know, which I think obviously we're coming out of a lot right now. You, you know? would say that until but... you have friends with kids and that's all they fucking talk about. Yeah. Why can't, <laughs> does nobody have any other stories? <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to hear about the fact that your kid was sick last night. Tell me something about your life, please. And that's what Simone is arguing. She's like, you can have kids. She goes, just also be your own person because it's possible. Like you can be your own person and a mother, you know, and a lot of people. And she also fought against the idea that like all women have maternal instincts. She goes, they don't, you know, like some women don't have that, you know? And she's like, that's another thing that we're just kind of like taught that we have, you know? And I just, I think she's bringing up a lot of conversations that people weren't ready to have. So people accused her of being very like anti-mother, like anti-children, you know? And she's like, I'm not really, you know, or else I don't perceive her to be. She's just like, I just want 
women to also be their own person, even if they have children. And not to just be defined as yeah. like, because I do understand for a long time, especially when women weren't allowed to have jobs or whatever in the house. It's like all you talked about was your, all you did was your kids. Mm-hmm. So what else are you going to talk about? Exactly. But it's like, there are, there are other things. Yeah. And she also argues for a woman's right to safe legal abortion. Like she lays out very clearly. She goes, it should be legal. It should be done by a trained professional in a clean setting. Like (laughs) say Um, it louder for the people in the back. And if I'm understanding it correctly, she also argues for a woman's right to choose sex work as a profession. You know, she is like not. And again, I have not read this book personally but this is what i've gathered like from the internet that mm-hmm. she is like like no like if they choose to do that they should be able to do that you know um again in a safe <laughs> setting where they are in control <laughs> um so apologies if i have left out your favorite part of the second sex or not gone into something that you love about her writing or if i have completely missed the ball whatever on this <laughs> But that is what I was understanding. In her conclusion, she looks forward to a future where women and men are equals, something the Soviet revolution promised but did not deliver. She concludes that to carry off this supreme victory, men and women must, among other things, and beyond their natural differentiations, unequivocally affirm their brotherhood. Which I also like because she ends the book by being like, we should be working together. Like, (laughs) which, you know, a lot of people still have this idea of feminism as very anti-male. And she is not saying that. She's like, no, no, no. We just need to, like, restructure the way we're thinking about each other and our relationships to each other, Mm. you know, which I really like. Um, The first French publication of The Second Sex sold around 22,000 copies in a week. It has since been translated into 40 languages. Mm. And in maybe its highest honor... The Vatican placed the book on its list of prohibited books. <laughs> banned books. Banned books. <laughs> and, of course, The Second Sex has been credited as inspiring writers like Betty Friedan and the entire, like, second wave of feminism. And, like Betty Friedan, there was some backlash to this book. Again, people felt it was very anti-mother, anti-marriage, and some people felt that it was even anti-woman, which people said about Betty Friedan too. Yeah. They felt like this book about the social repercussions of misogyny was like pretty misogynistic. One critic says it feels like Simone de Beauvoir does not even really like women and thinks of herself as above regular women. But this is how the system convinces uh-huh. other women to hate you. To yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the not whole, listen to you. I, yes. That's the whole thing that's being done yeah. every single time. It's like, oh, she is a free opinion. She must hate women. Yeah. She doesn't respect you or your life. And it's like, no, yes, we do. Yeah, we do. We care so much. And I feel like, you know, the whole baseline of Simone's whole philosophy is like personal freedom, you know? And she, because I kind of like this about existentialism is that it's all about finding your own meaning in life, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like. Your meaning in life should not come from these like outside forces that are telling you what it should be, but you should find it for yourself and everyone's is different, you know, which I kind of like that idea. And when you say things like, well, like she just hates women, you know, and men. And it's like, 
Well, <laughs> I don't think that that's true. I think that she's just broadening the net for like what women and men could be. Right. And it scares you, you know? Um, but, and also, you know, we have to acknowledge that it comes from a, a source of like an upper middle class wealthy you know whatever yeah french white, woman french yeah, woman you know woman. who's reading it so like it might seem out of touch to people and like mm-hmm. people have made criticisms like well yeah of course you can like think about these things like some people literally don't have the time and the resources to have these deep philosophical conversations absolutely <laughs> and i mean that's who gets book books published yeah. right like the people who have the time and the resources to sit down and write them so of course like the perspective will be skewed yeah um, but no matter the criticisms of the book or of Simone herself, I think it's unbelievable the amount of conversations about gender and sexuality and social issues concerning women and people were started because of this book. Mm. I literally was a gender studies major and I kind of forgot how much of our language we use in that whole course of study comes from her. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. In 1954, she wrote another novel called The Mandarins, which is why I put these little (laughs) mandarin oranges in here. Uh, It follows the personal lives of philosophers and friends. And, of course, it is based on the sexual exploits of her and Jean-Paul and their friends. But one of Simone's lovers and one of the subjects in the book was, like, pretty pissed about this. Nelson Algren was an American writer who was involved with this whole group. And when the book came out, he was like, I told you I did not want you to write about my sex life. And like, here you are writing like a whole book about it. So he was upset. Uh, Simone also wrote popular travel diaries about time spent in the United States and China. And she published essays and fiction rigorously, especially through the 50s and the 60s. She published several volumes of short stories, including The Woman Destroyed, um, which like some of her uh, later work deals with aging And in 1980, she wrote When Things of the Spirit Come First, which was a set of short stories centered on and based upon women important to her in her earlier years. And she also wrote a series of autobiographical works, the most famous of which was Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter. In the 1970s, she became active in France's women's liberation movement. She wrote and signed the Manifesto of the 343 in 1971. And this was a manifesto that included a list of famous women who, you know, claimed to have had an abortion, which was then illegal in France. Wow. So it was basically the kind of me too of its day. You know, it was this list of like, I'm a famous person that you know of, and I have had an abortion. Like, these things are happening. People you know are getting them, so let's get it out in the open so we can start talking about it and get it fucking legalized so it's safer. Mm -hmm. And just a few years later, in 1974, it was legalized in France. But then in 1977, (laughs) she signed not such a good document. Oh, no. This was a petition that was going around, and it was particularly popular with the existential philosophy crew, and it was a petition to get rid of the age of consent in France. That's self-serving. And to put it in perspective, the age of consent in France was already 15. No. And it's still 15 to this day. That's not an accurate age to be consenting to have sex. No. Now, in my research, it seemed like it kind of stemmed from a protest of a certain portion of the law that made the age of consent for sodomy 18. 
So they saw this as like homophobic. They okay. Like, I can understand. I, I can understand. That. But like, why is it 15 for everybody else, but 18 for gay men? Like mm-hmm. that's like homophobic. That's not okay. Um, but I don't really care that it came from that because we're still talking about sexual encounters with underage people. And some of the things in the petition they were saying were like 12 and 13 year olds should be able to make sexual decisions for themselves. And it's like, not really when it comes to sexual relationships with adults. Like, yeah, no, like that's not okay. No, it's like 12 and 13 year olds should be able to have private conversations with doctors. Yeah. That's one thing. Uh-huh. They shouldn't be able to have a conversation like sexual encounters with 80 year old people, yeah. 50 year old, 30 year olds. Not yeah. safe. It's not. And then like, they were like upset because like, they were like, well, look at this guy, Richard. Like, He's living with a bunch of girls age nine to 13 and he has sex with them and like they love it. And it's like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think they love it. I don't think they ha- are really being spoken to about this and or like, have the power to say no. Yeah. Like, and he's living. Who is this guy? You know, it's just this portion is very upsetting. And I just, I hate it so much. Um, <laughs> But she signed it, and it's a thing in her story that we fucking have to talk about. Simone spent the rest of her life publishing the thousands of letters between her and her circle, most notably between her and Jean-Paul. She never had any children. She never married. But she did adopt a 17-year-old girl named Sylvie Le Bon when she was 52, and that girl became the heir to Simone's estate. And then on April 14th, 1986, 11 days after producer and Amanda Bynes were born, <laughs> Simone de Beauvoir died from pneumonia at the age of 78. Mm. She was buried next to Jean-Paul in Paris. And although her legacy is complicated by the way she conducted her personal life, we still have to acknowledge the profound impact her work has had on the world. And I think I'll end on another quote that I like of hers. One's life has value so long as one attributes value to the life of others. Mm. Which I think is true. What an interesting lady. Yeah. Oh, and she also like had an, a, a long of term like affair with a much younger man. The, and he was the director of that film, Shoah. Um, <laughs> I didn't know where to put that what in. What a weird life. She had a very weird life. And it was, yeah, very complicated. Um, but yeah, I not what I expected. <laughs> they never are with the philosophers no no all right well let's talk about these two women in conversation with each other in a little segment we like to call just the two of us okay well first they're contemporaries i love when that I happens couldn't believe that yeah they're crossing paths only nine is that nine nine years apart? yeah nine years apart yeah. in age so they are literally you know living this same life fighting a similar battle yeah and i thought it was inter- interesting that even though they're born worlds apart they both came from high class well-educated families i, agree. I thought about that with the samurai versus the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. you know and how that kind of set them up for thinking they could do more. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, you know, like we were talking about, there's a privilege to being able to philosophize about things. Like not a lot of people have to like have the privilege of doing that because they're worried about like 
eating. how they're going to feed their yeah. themselves and their family. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like where's my next meal going to come from? Mm-hmm. Where are we going to get clothes when our or shoes, when our feet grow? Like, yeah. Not worried about what love truly is. Right. But also it's like, just because they were privileged does not mean that they were totally free. No. You know, and Mm-mm. I think that that's also interesting, you know, an, uh, an important p- point to make when we have these conversations is like, Yes, we should always be talking about the intersection of race, class, and gender, and how all of these things intersect. And there's always something, it seems, especially in these stories of women who, you know, try and do great things that, like, even if they're privileged in one sense, they might be lacking freedom in another sense. Right. It reminds me of when we do stories about women in China who got their feet bound. Mm -hmm. It was they were the wealthy women. So they were privileged and educated, but it's like the women in the lower classes weren't privileged or educated and in sometimes were working in slavery, but they didn't have their feet bound because they had to work. Mm -hmm. So like it it just is so interesting to me that there is that huge difference between the classes Mm -hmm. and personal freedom versus governmental freedom. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And educational freedom. Yeah. And I think that that kind of set them both up to like notice what's happening to other women Mm -hmm. because an important part about a person who's trying to do great things is looking around about and like seeing what's happening in the world. Right. And obviously for Shih Tzu, it like it was more of like a violent like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, you know, pulling the wool from over her eyes or whatever, you know, kind of reminds you of the story. Oh, she had culture shock. Yeah, she had in her own country. Yeah. You know, and it was like, like just this awful thing that happened where she was like, I just had no idea that this was happening, you know? And then once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. You know, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that was kind of what happened for Simone when she was growing up and her parents were like, you don't have a dowry. You right. have to make it on your own, mm-hmm. you know, because then she's like, oh, OK, then, yeah, I definitely will. Like, I don't think she had a problem with it, but I wonder how her sister felt about that. Mm. I like to think about the other people who this is happening to, like maybe Helene was like, what the fuck? Like, I don't want to be a philosopher sitting at cafe. Mm-hmm. She goes, I just want to be like. A wife and a mom having a life. I mean, but maybe they looked at their two daughters and they said, we don't, we only have enough for a dowry for one of you. Yeah. And you're the one who is like able to do this because Mm -hmm. that's also insulting to their other daughter. (laughs) Like, do you know what I mean? It's like very different. I also thought it was interesting that the Imperial Japanese government and the Nazis both looked at them and were like, no. Yep. Mm. They were big enough. In the areas where they lived, where it was like, sorry, please, yep. full halt during World War II. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Take it down a notch. Nobody wants that from you. And I think that when we're talking about the things that they believed in, they were obviously on the same wavelength, mm-hmm. you know, pro-choice in, you know, uh, marriage and children and all of these things. But I think where they differentiate is shit so Shih Tzu? Shih Tzu, yeah. She was really doing things about it. She was a woman of action, where I I think Simone was more a woman of words. Mm -hmm. You know? And I don't think that... I think we need both. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
I don't want to say that Simone's contributions are lesser than, because obviously they've led to a lot of conversations, which then lead to action. Right. Um, but I think that it's interesting seeing women who had very different approaches to making life better for women. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. On how to do that. Yeah. Um, and they also had different approaches on, uh, well, actually similar approaches on how far they could take freedom, mm-hmm. which I think is too far. When you start mm-hmm. to talk about eugenics and you start yeah. to talk about grooming, <laughs> like what's the, yeah. po- what's the popular phrase? Like your freedom stops where another person's nose begins. Like you mm-hmm. can't punch somebody. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. You can talk enough about it, but as soon as you start impacting other people, mm-hmm. when you start taking people's rights away, when you make somebody feel uncomfortable for being mm-hmm. gay, when you stop letting people into your store because they're a different race or can't speak the language Mm -hmm. that's when you're breaking the rules like you can have the opinions you fucking want that's your freedom yeah but you cannot impact other people and if you're starting to tell like be ableist and tell people who are sick or poor that they shouldn't have kids yeah that's that's fucked up you're impacting people's lives and the same is true of grooming you're saying everybody should be free to love whoever they want but if you're manipulating Uh children then you're really harming someone yeah because they don't have as much of a choice as you're kind of saying that they do. Right. Especially when it comes to like a teacher student relationship. It is just so inappropriate. And it's power like, structures off. Yeah. The power structure is off. And it's just kind of funny to me that she spent all this time talking about like, if your freedom is encroaching on another person's freedom, then like it's not freedom or whatever. And it's like, well, that's what you're doing with these young girls. Mm. Because now, like, she affected them for the rest of their lives, you know? Yeah. Like, they had a hard time. And it was because of her actions. So it's like, you're limiting what they can do with their life because they're so scarred with what you and Jean-Paul, like, did to them. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. That's also a problem, though, with, like, focusing mainly on words is sometimes you don't practice what you preach. Yeah. And, you know, I do feel like shit's out was a little bit more I don't know again like action oriented and like believed it and then did it yeah I do also I just think it's really important to point out that both of these women lived through both World War One and World War Two in countries that were heavily involved that's true France specifically was right in the middle of the action both times so she Simone did have a lot of time to sit and to think and to be scared. I mean, France was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first countries invaded by the Nazis and almost completely taken over. Like it was a very dangerous to live in France and have ideas. So she was brave. Like she was being brave to like Mm -hmm. think differently than the Nazis. So I do want to point that out. She did make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think to be Japanese and coming in and out of America, that was dangerous and scary. And, and you had to be brave to also stand up against that imperial government. There there are things that in the United States, we were fighting in these wars, but we weren't in the middle of the action in the same way. No. Yeah. I totally agree. I didn't really think about that. Like them living through so much of the, you know, was it the 20, 21st, 20th century, 20th century. century. (laughs) I mean the bloodiest, you know, century and the two bloodiest wars like we've ever had. Yeah. And they're right in the middle of the action. They were children, both of them during world war one, but Mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, France was a hard place to be for all of the 20th century. (laughs) It was rough. Well, and I also, I think that both of them have such a further reach than, 
we realize mm. women in japan are still benefiting actually women all over well, the are still world benefiting from, from her plan. the way she set up the family planning in japan and simone still affects our daily language yeah. and i don't know if a lot of people know that a lot of these words we're using come from her mm. and i just think it's amazing that their reach is so much further than we even realize. Mm-hmm. And I love that about mm-hmm. both of them. Yeah. Even if they were flawed figures, which everybody is. is. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, Amazing. Right. I love this. This is great. It was a great combination. Um, so who, what, who would you like to toast this evening to finish out our story? So this is something that like I was thinking about while I was doing, um, Shidzel's story but then also after our interview tonight which you guys will hear in two weeks we did a wonderful interview with a woman who um left an abusive arranged marriage mm-hmm. in India um after a lot of careful planning to escape um but I just people with the courage to get up and walk away and towards something important mm-hmm. which could be just taking care of yourself yeah but in and in Shidzow's situation it was like her husband wasn't abusive or anything she was just walking away from a marriage she didn't want anymore yeah and towards like her future and passion and activism so yeah. being brave enough to walk away yeah cheers and having something to go to <laughs> i'm going to toast the people who give us the language we need to express ourselves again I feel like we're very action-oriented society, and I also think that words are important, and it feels so good to say, like, I'm feeling othered in this way, and everybody knows what you mean by that, Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a very powerful term to give people, and I think it has, you know, been stretched to... All sorts of people who feel not listened to, not heard, second class. And I, I, did, I don't know. I just, I love that she has given us this language. And even though she did some fucked up things, uh, I'm going to still toast to her and other people who give us that kind of language. To Cheers. <laughs> now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? This is silly. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I love Legos. And I just, I think there's been so much hype around adult coloring books and Mm -hmm. how mentally, like it brings so much mental health benefits to just sit and kind of color. And I think that Legos do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And Legos have like an entire adult like set. Like you can get adult sets of Legos where you're just building, like following the guidebook and just slowly sitting there and building. And it is so rewarding it's like doing a puzzle and i think people for adults forget that you can buy legos yeah um and there are really difficult ones they're really simple ones i got sister um a lego bouquet for christmas because you know how she loves origami and it's just like a box full of legos she can put together to create this beautiful flower bouquet and it's gorgeous she finished it it's in her room i just like that's the type of thing where like sometimes you feel dumb but then you're doing it and you're like, oh my God, I feel so relaxed right now. Yeah. Because it's also not like color, like coloring. You have to pick your colors and your space. 
That's why I never got into it. Uh-huh. It's a little too stressful for me. It is. I much prefer a puzzle. Yeah, and then a puzzle, like you might end up getting frustrated because you can't find this or can't do that or you lose a piece, which mm-hmm. you can lose pieces with Legos, but there's a literal guidebook. It's like yeah. step one, put this together. Step two. So I just I just want to promote that there is an adult version of Legos. They come in black boxes. I love that. Which is really nice. And are then, they cheaper than the giant Harry Potter Lego no, sets? Okay. They are. <laughs> Just as expensive as normal oh Legos. Legos raking in the dough. No, but there so... are off-brand Legos. Ooh, I wonder yeah, if uh, off-brand Legos has an adult version. But yeah. I really do think it's great and good for your mental health. You know what's funny is uh, that same bouquet Lego set was just featured in an episode of Abbott Elementary. Was it really? Yes. Okay, well, she loved it. She oh, had a good. grand old time making it. And it's beautiful. Ugh. It's in like a glass vase, like in her um, so office. Cute. Yeah. Love it. So very cool. Um, I'm going to recommend a show that fiance and I started last night. <gasps> it's a brand new show. Brand new show. We just watched the first episode. Oh my gosh. It might suck then. I think it's so good. Okay. It's called Poker Face. Okay. Starring Natasha Leone, P- who P- I'm obsessed P- with. Mm-hmm. I love her as a person. I think okay. her voice is so raspy and cool. Her mm-hmm. hair is crazy. I know exactly who you're talking about, and she's amazing. She's so good. And I also would simultaneously recommend, um, she had an interview with Armchair Expert recently, and she kind of goes through like her story a bit because she was like cast in a movie at, like I think, like maybe 16 or 19. So she got famous very quickly. She's making lots of money and she gets hardcore addicted to drugs. Like she was like, oh yeah. She goes, I was in like tenement buildings, like trying to get dope and like running in in and out of alleys with like rats. And like, she goes, I was really bad off. And she ended up having to have open heart surgery (gasps) in her 20s. Oh my God. Her life was so fucking hardcore. So that's why like she kind of looks familiar to people and then when Orange is the New Black came out, I think that was her first thing. She, like, came back and played a character who, like, had been addicted to hardcore drugs and, like, had, had to have open-heart surgery. And, like, because that was her story. Her story, pretty much. I think she looks so fun. Yeah. Yeah. She's a blast. I, I literally just want to, like, be friends with her. And I love the way that she talks. Like, she was talking about her ex-boyfriend, Fred, Fred Armisen. And she goes, ah, oh, yeah, Freddy baby. You gotta love the Freddy baby. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was that cool. Like, like, that. like, and just like being so fine with my ex. Yeah. Yeah. And she's like, you know, and I told him when we broke up, you know, you can keep the house. <laughs> she goes and the Freddy baby goes, well, yeah, I can keep the house. It's my fucking house. He's like, get out of here. <laughs> That's fun. And like, I don't know. I just think she's delightful. So like, listen to her in interviews, watch poker face. So the premise of the show mm-hmm. is that, she is like a human lie detector. Mm-hmm. She can tell when people are lying. So she like got really good at poker and then got into some trouble. And now like it's like every episode is a new murder mystery. So there's one kind of story running through, but each episode has a new surprise like celebrity packed cast. Like <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in it. Love Adrian it. Brody is in it. Like all of these people. A dream. It's unreal. Chloe's 78. Like, Mm. it's a really packed good show. And I like that it's kind of modeled after, like, 70s cop procedurals Mm -hmm. that, like, 
she's almost like the lead detective, but yeah. she's not a detective. She's yeah. just like a dirt ball who finds herself around dead people all the time. <laughs> so it's really, really good. Perfect. And it's just great. So I just want to recommend it. And Yay. hopefully it stays good. And yes. I'm not recommending a bad show. Yeah. Well, who knows? <laughs> Listen, sometimes you got to recommend something new. <sighs> all right. Well, thank you for listening. Um, you can find us everywhere online. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That would be amazing. Be like Meg. Be like Meg. And be like Megan. Meg. <laughs> <laughs> She's our new friend. We have a nickname for her. It's fine. Exactly. It's great. So you can have a nickname too if you rate and review us. Uh, and if you don't want the party to stop, you can join us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can listen to very personal stories from our lives <laughs> and us just bullshit around for a bit. Mm -hmm. And it's so much fun. And we send you things every once in a while. And you can get pre-sale tickets. Mm -hmm. to our live show that's going up in March for our 200th episode to Woo! celebrate. Woo! Can't wait. All right. Thank you again. And never forget that well-behaved women only speak when they're spoken to. Yeah. And they never make us, rarely make us, rarely. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.